Section 2 of Despoilers of the Golden Empire by David Gordon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 2, Chapter 5. Of them all, only a handful, including the commander, had any real knowledge of what lay ahead of them, and that knowledge only pertained to the periphery of the area the intrepid band of adventurers were entering. They knew that the aliens possessed a rudimentary civilization. They did not, at that time, realize they were entering the outposts of a powerful barbaric empire, an empire almost as well-organized and well-armed as that of the first-century Rome, and, if anything, even more savage and ruthless. It was an empire ruled by a single family who called themselves the Great Nobles. At their head was the greatest noble, the Child of the Sun himself. It has since been conjectured that the great nobles were mutants in the true sense of the word, a race apart from their subjects. It is impossible to be absolutely sure at this late date, and the commander's expedition, lacking any qualified geneticists or genetic engineers, had no way of determining, and indeed no real interest in determining, whether this was or was not true. Nonetheless, historical evidence seems to indicate the validity of the hypothesis. Never before, not even in ancient Egypt, had the historians ever seen a culture like it. It was an absolute monarchy that would have made any medieval king, except the most saintly, look upon it with awe and envy. The Russians and the Germans never even approached it. The Japanese tried to approximate it at one time in their history, but they failed secure in the knowledge that theirs was the only civilizing force on the face of the planet the race of the great nobles spread over the length of a great continent conquering the lesser races as they went physically the great nobles and their lesser subjects were quite similar they were like the commander and his men human in every sense of the word that this argues some ancient prehistoric migration across the empty gulfs that separate the worlds cannot be denied but when and how that migration took place are data lost in the midst of time. However it may have happened, the fact remains that these people were human. As someone observed in one of the reports written up by one of the officers, they could pass for Indians, except their skins are of a decidedly redder hue. The race of the great nobles held their conquered subjects in check by the exercise of two powerful forces— religion, and physical power of arms. Like the feudal organizations of medieval Europe, the nobles had the power of life and death over their subjects, and to a much greater extent than the European nobles had. Each family lived on an allotted parcel of land and did a given job. Travel was restricted to a radius of a few miles. There was no money. There was no necessity for it, since the government of the great nobles took all produce and portioned it out again according to need. It was communism on a vast and incomprehensible, as it may seem to the modern mind, workable scale. Their minds were as different from ours as their bodies were similar. The concept freedom would have been totally incomprehensible to them. They were sun worshippers, and the greatest noble was the child of the sun, a godling subordinate only to the sun himself. Directly under him were the lesser great nobles, also children of the sun, but to a lesser extent. They exercised absolute power over the conquered peoples, 
but even they had no concept of freedom since they were as tied to the people as the people were tied to them it was a benevolent dictatorship of a kind never seen before or since at the periphery of the empire of the sun-child lived still unconquered savage tribes which the imperial forces were in the process of slowly taking over during the centuries tribe after tribe had fallen before the brilliant leadership of the great nobles and the territory of the empire had slowly expanded until at the time the invading earthmen came it covered almost as much territory as had the roman empire at its peak the imperial army consisting of upwards of fifty thousand troops was extremely mobile in spite of the handicap of having no form of transportation except their own legs they had no cavalry the only beast of burden known to them the flame beasts were too small to carry more than a hundred pounds in spite of their endurance but the wide smooth roads that ran the length and breadth of the empire enabled a marching army to make good time and messages carried by runners and relays could traverse the empire in a matter of days not weeks and into this tight-knit well-organized powerful barbaric world marched commander frank with less than two hundred men and thirty carriers chapter six it didn't take long for the men to begin to chafe under the constant strain of moving through treacherous and unfamiliar territory and the first signs of chafing made themselves apparent beneath their armor even the best designed armor cannot be built to be worn for an unlimited length of time and at first the men could see no reason for the order they soon found out one evening after camp had been made one young officer decided that he had spent his last night sleeping in full armor it was bad enough to have to march in it but sleeping in it was too much he took it off and stretched enjoying the freedom from the heavy steel his tent was a long way from the centre of camp where a small fire flickered and the soft light from the planet's single mood filtered only dimly through the jungle foliage overhead he didn't think anyone would see him from the commander's tent the commander's orders had been direct and to the point you will wear your armor at all times you will march in it you will eat in it you will sleep in it during such times as it is necessary to remove a part of it the man doing so will make sure that he is surrounded by at least two of his companions in full armor there will be no exceptions to this rule the lieutenant had decided to make himself an exception he turned to step into his tent when a voice came out of the nearby darkness hadn't you better get your steel plates back on before the commander sees you the young officer turned quickly to see who had spoken it was another of the junior officers mind your own business snapped the lieutenant the other grinned sardonically and if i don't there had been bad blood between these two for a long time it was an enmity that went back to a time even before the expedition had begun the two men stood there for a long moment the light from the distant fire flickering uncertainly against their bodies the young officer who had removed his armor had not been foolish enough to remove his weapons too no sane man did that in hostile territory his hand went to the haft of the blade at his side if you say a single word instinctively the other dropped his hand to his own sword stop both of you and stop they did no one could mistake the crackling authority in that voice 
the commander unseen in the moving dim light had been circling the periphery of the camp to make sure that all was well he strode toward the two younger men who stood silently shocked into immobility the commander's sword was already in his hand i'll spit the first man that draws a blade he snapped his keen eyes took in the situation at a glance lieutenant what are you doing out of armor it was hot sir and i shut up the commander's eyes were dangerous an asinine statement like that isn't even worth listening to get that armor back on move he was standing approximately between the two men who had been four or five yards apart when the cowed young officer took a step or two back towards his tent the commander turned toward the other officer and as for you if he was cut off by the yell of the unarmored man followed by the sound of his blade singing from its sheath the commander leaped backwards and spun his own sword at the ready his body settling into a swordsman's crouch but the young officer was not drawing against his superior he was hacking at something ropey and writhing that squirmed on the ground as the lieutenant's blade bit into it within seconds the serpentine thing gave a convulsive shudder and died the lieutenant stepped back clumsily his eyes glazing in the flickering light dropped from the tree he said thickly bit me his hand moved to a dark spot on his chest but it never reached its goal the lieutenant collapsed crumpling to the ground the commander walked over slammed the heel of his heavy boot hard down on the head of the snaky thing crushing it then he returned his blade to its sheath knelt down by the young man and turned him over on his face the commander's own face was grim by this time some of the nearby men attracted by the yell had come running they came to a stop as they saw the tableau before them the commander kneeling beside the corpse looked up at them with one hand he gestured at the body let this be a lesson to all of you he said in a tight voice this man died because he took off his armor that he pointed at the butchered reptile thing is full of as deadly a poison as you'll ever see and it can move like lightning but it can't bite through steel look well at this man and tell others what you saw i don't want to lose another man in this idiotic fashion he stood up and gestured bury him chapter seven they found, as they penetrated deeper into the savage-infested hinterlands of the Empire of the Great Nobles, that the armor fended off more than just snakes. Hardly a day passed, but one or more of the men would hear a sharp spang of a blowgun-driven dart as it slammed ineffectually against his armored back or chest. At first, some of the men wanted to charge into the surrounding forest whence the darts came and punish the sniping aliens, but the commander would have none of it stick together he ordered they'll do worse to us if we're split up in this jungle those blowgun darts aren't going to hurt you as long as they're hitting steel ignore them and keep moving they kept moving around them the jungle chattered and muttered and occasionally screamed clouds of insects great and small hummed and buzzed through the air they subsided only when the drizzling rains came and then lifted again from their resting places when the sun came out to raise steamy vapors from the moist ground it was not an easy march before many days had passed the men's feet were cracked and blistered from the effects of fungus dampness and constant marching 
the compact military marching order which had characterized the first few days of march had long since deteriorated into a straggling column where the weaker were supported by the stronger three more men died one simply dropped in his tracks he was dead before anyone could touch him insect bite disease no one knew another had been even less fortunate a lion-like carnivore had leaped on him during the night and clawed him badly before one of his companions blasted the thing with a power weapon three days later the wounded man was begging to be killed one arm and one leg were gangrenous but he died while begging thus sparing any would-be executioner from an unpleasant duty the third man simply failed to show up for roll call one morning he was never seen again but the rest of the column with dauntless courage followed the lead of their commander it was hard to read their expressions those reddened eyes that peered at him from swollen bearded faces but he knew his own face looked no different we all knew this wasn't going to be a fancy dress ball when we came he said nobody said this was going to be the easiest way in the world to get rich the commander was sitting on one of the carriers his eyes watching the men who were lined up in front of him his voice was purposely held low but it carried well the marching has been difficult but now we're really going to see what we're made of we all need a rest and we all deserve one but when I lie down to rest, I'm going to do it in a halfway decent bed with some good, solid food in my belly. Here's the way the picture looks. An hour's march from here, there's a good-sized village. He swung partially away from them and pointed south. I think we have earned that town and everything in it. He swung back, facing them. There was a wolfish grin on his face. There's gold there, too. Not much, really, compared with what we'll get later on but enough to whet our appetites. The men's faces were beginning to change now, in spite of the swelling. I don't think we need to worry too much about the savages that are living there now. With God on our side, I hardly see how we can fail. He went on, telling them how they would attack the town, the disposition of the men, the use of the carriers, and so forth. By the time he was through, every man there was as eager as he to move in. When he finished speaking, they set up a cheer. For the emperor and the universal assembly. The natives of the small village had heard that some sort of terrible beings were approaching through the jungle. Word had come from the people of the forest that the strange monsters were impervious to darts, and that they had huge dragons with them which were terrifying even to look at. They were clad in metal and made queer noises as they moved. The village chieftain called his advisers together to ponder the situation. What should they do with these strange things? What were the invaders' intentions? Obviously, the things must be hostile. Therefore, there were only two courses open, fight or flee. The chieftain and his men decided to fight. It would have been a good thing if there had only been some imperial troops in the vicinity, but all the troops were farther south, where a civil war was raging over the right of succession of the greatest noble. Nevertheless, there were two thousand fighting men in the village. Well, two thousand men, at any rate, and they would certainly all fight, though some were rather young and a few were too old for really any hard fighting. On the other hand, it would probably not come to that, since the strangers were outnumbered by at least three to one. The chieftain gave his orders for the defense of the village. 
The invading earthmen approached the small town cautiously from the west. The commander had his men spread out a little, but not so much that they could be separated. He saw the aliens grouped around the square, box-like buildings, watching and waiting for trouble. "'We'll give them trouble,' the commander whispered softly. He waited until his troops were properly deployed, and then he gave the signal for the charge. The carriers went in first, thundering directly into the massed alien warriors. Each carrier man fired a single shot from his power weapon, and then went to work with his carrier, running down the terrified aliens and swinging a sword with one hand while he guided with the other. The commander went in with that first charge, aiming his own carrier toward the center of the fray. He had some raw, untrained men with him, and he believed in teaching by example. The aliens recoiled at the onslaught of what they took to be horrible living monsters that were unlike anything ever seen before. Then the commander's infantry charged in. The shock effect of the carriers had been enough to disorganize the aliens, but the battle was not over yet by a long shot. There were yells from other parts of the village as some of the other defenders, hearing the sounds of battle, came running to reinforce the home guard. Better than 1,500 men were converging on the spot. The invading earthmen moved in rapidly against the armed natives, beating them back by the sheer ferocity of their attack. Weapons of steel clashed against weapons of bronze and wood. The power weapons were only used sparingly, only when the necessity to save a life was greater than the necessity to conserve weapon charges was a shot fired. The commander, from the center of the fray, took a glance around the area. One glance was enough. They're dropping back, he bellowed, his voice carrying well above the din of the battle. Keep a moving. He singled out one of his officers at a distance and yelled, Here on, get a couple of men to cover that street. He waved toward one of the narrow streets that ran off to one side. The others were already being attended to. The commander jerked around swiftly as one of the natives grabbed hold of the carrier and tried to hack at the commander with a bronze sword. The commander spitted him neatly on his blade and withdrew it, just in time to parry another attack from the other side. By this time, the reinforcements from the other parts of the village were beginning to come in from the side streets, but they were a little late. The warriors in the square, what was left of them, had panicked. In an effort to get away from the terrible monsters with their deadly blades and their fire-spitting weapons, they were leaving by the same channels that the reinforcements were coming in by, and the resultant jam-up was disastrous. The panic communicated itself like wildfire but no one could move fast enough to get away from the sweeping, stabbing, glittering blades of the invading earthmen. All right, the commander yelled. We've got them on the run now. Break up into squads at three and clear those streets. Clear them out. Keep them moving. After that, it was the work of minutes to clear the town. The commander brought his carrier to a dead stop, reached out with his sword, and snagged a bit of cloth from one of the fallen native warriors. He began to wipe the blade of his weapon as Lieutenant Commander Ernan pulled up beside him. Casualties? the commander asked Ernan without looking up from his work. Six wounded, no dead, said Ernan. Or did you want me to count the aliens, too? The commander shook his head. Now, get a detail to clear out the carrion, and then tell Freighter Vincent I want to talk to him. We'll have to start teaching these people the truth. Chapter 8 
have you anything to say in your defense the commander asked coldly for a moment the accused looked nothing but hatred at the commander but there was fear behind that hatred at last he found his voice it was mine you promised us all a share lieutenant commander hernan picked up a leather bag that lay on the table behind which he and the commander were sitting with a sudden gesture he upended it dumping its contents on the flat wooden surface of the table do you deny that this was found among your personal possessions he asked harshly no said the accused soldier why should i it's mine rightfully mine i fought for it i found it i kept it it's mine he glanced to either side towards the two guards who flanked him then looked back at the commander the commander ran an idle finger through the pound or so of golden trinkets that hernan had spilled from the bag he knew what the trooper was thinking a man had a right to what he had earned didn't he the commander picked up one of the heavier bits of primitive jewelry and tossed it in his hand then he stood up and looked around the town square the company had occupied the town for several weeks the stored grains in the community warehouse plus the relaxation the men had had plus the relative security of the town had put most of the men back into condition one had died from a skin infection and another from wounds sustained in the assault on the town but the remainder were in good health and all of them with the exception of the sentries guarding the town's perimeter were standing in the square watching the court-martial their eyes didn't seem to blink and their breathing was soft and measured they were waiting for the commander's decision the commander still tossing the crude golden earring stood tall and straight estimating the feeling of the men surrounding him gold he said finally gold that's what we came here for and that's what we're going to get five hundred pounds of the stuff would make any one of you wealthy for the rest of his life do you think i blame any one of you for wanting it do you think i blame this man here of course not he laughed a short hard bark do i blame myself he tossed the bauble again caught it but wanting it is one thing getting it holding and taking care of it wisely are something else again i gave orders i have expected and still expect that they will be obeyed but i didn't give them just to hear myself give orders there was a reason and a good one suppose we let each man take what gold he could find what would happen the lucky ones would be wealthy and the unlucky would still be poor and then some of the lucky ones would wake up some morning without the gold they'd taken because someone else had relieved them of it while they slept and others wouldn't wake up at all because they'd be found with their throats cut i told you to bring every bit of the metal to me when this thing is over every one of you will get his share if a man dies his share will be split among the rest instead of being stolen by someone else or lost because it was hidden too well he looked at the earring in his hand then with a convulsive sweep of his arm he tossed it out into the middle of the square there seven ounces of gold which of you wants it some of the men eyed the circle of metal that gleamed brightly in the sunlit ground but none of them made any motion to pick it up so the commander's voice was almost gentle he turned his eyes back toward the accused you know the orders you knew them when you hid this he gestured negligently toward the small heap of native rock metal suppose you'd gotten away with it you'd have ended up with your own share plus this 
thereby cheating the others out of he glanced at the pile mm, say twenty-five each and that's only a little compared with what we'll get from now on he looked back at the others unless the shares are taken care of my way the largest shares will go to the dishonest the most powerful and the luckiest unless the division is made as we originally agreed we'll end up trying to cut each other's hearts out there was hardness in his voice when he spoke to the accused but there was compassion there too first you have forfeited your share in this expedition all that you have now and all that you might have expected will be divided among the others according to our original agreement second i do not expect any man to work for nothing since you will not receive anything from this expedition there is no point in your assisting the rest of us or working with us in any way whatsoever third we can't have anyone with us who does not carry his own weight he glanced at the guards hang him he paused now as he was led away the commander watched the other men there was approval in their eyes but there was something else there too a wariness a concealed fear the condemned man turned suddenly and began shouting at the commander but before he could utter more than three syllables a fist smashed him down the guards dragged him off all right men said the commander carefully let's search the village there might be more gold about i have a hunch that this isn't all he hid let's see if we can find the rest of it he sensed the relief of tension as he spoke the commander was right it was amazing how much gold one man had been able to stash away end of section two